The text for this morning's sermon is taken from 1 Corinthians 3, the verses 5 through 9. We just read that together, but let's read it once again. There Paul says through the Holy Spirit, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 81, the stanzas 1, 3, 5, 6, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, when Paul starts off his letter to the Corinthians, he starts off by giving thanks Actually, that's somewhat of a surprise. Why would he start off that way? For there are a lot of things wrong in the church at Corinth. It's actually surprising that there is a church there. There are all kinds of factions in the church, lots of turmoil. But it is for that very reason that Paul does come with thanksgiving. He knows that God alone is responsible for the establishment and the continual growth in that congregation. If it weren't so, the church at Corinth would fall apart. He is the one who keeps it all together, and so he gives thanks. But the question for us this morning is, how does God do that? How does he establish and maintain a people of his own? And here in chapter 3, Paul gives us some insight into that. Paul uses an illustration which everyone can understand. He uses an illustration from agriculture. It's clear. It's straightforward. And yet, as is often the case with such illustrations, it's also very deep. For the illustration brings home a truth which we have a hard time grasping. It brings home to us the miraculous power of God in the creation, recreation, and growth of all life. It brings home to us our total dependence on God. Let us listen to the preaching of God's Spirit as I've summarized it on the following theme Although the Lord uses man to build his church, he alone gives the growth. Now we will see in the first place why, how he gives the growth, and then secondly, why he gives the growth, for what purpose. As I said, there were many problems in the congregation at Corinth. And one of those problems is mentioned here in this text. It has to do with divisions in the congregation. There is a party spirit evident. There are those who felt that the message is directly tied to the messenger. They believe that the truth of the message 
depended for a large deal on the messenger himself. And that's understandable. For that's the way it is with us sinful human beings. The saying, the medium is the message, was just as true then as it is now. During Paul's days, there were many philosophers ready to share their own brand of wisdom. And those philosophers were readily found in the city of Corinth. That city was a very large port city, easily accessible by sea and by land. And so teachers and philosophers came to that city from all over the Greek world and beyond. They came with their own particular brand of wisdom, and they used all kinds of rhetorical devices to convince the hearers of the truth of their marriage. And the better the speaker, the more convincing he would be, and the more followers he would have. And so each philosopher had his own group of people that belonged to him, kind of, his own disciples. But now what do these new Christians in Corinth do? Well, they treated the messengers of the gospel in the same way as they treated those itinerant philosophers. They also judged the message by the messenger. They judged the content of the message by the kind of package that it came in. We tend to do the same thing, don't we? It's human nature to follow human leaders. We are more interested in the message of someone who is an accomplished speaker, whose language is simple and direct, who is easily understood, than in the message of someone who doesn't quite have all those qualities. It's a different style. It's human nature to be drawn to someone who looks the best, who sounds the best. The politicians of today are certainly aware of that, aren't they? And so they exploit that to the limit. And they try to dress up the message as best as they can. Even if they know they're telling you a pack of lies, they nevertheless make it sound very convincing. They and their handlers know that that person who sounds and who looks the best is also the one who will be most popular. In the passage under consideration this morning, Paul warns against that kind of thinking. He warns the Corinthians because they too listened to the messenger, not so much because of what he says, but because of how he says it. For look at what he writes here in this text. He noticed that there are those who make a distinction between him and Apollos. As a matter of fact, in the beginning of the letter, he also mentions Cephas and others. There's party spirit there. And there are those who prefer Apollos to Paul. And vice versa, those who prefer Paul to Apollos. Now, why do you think they do that? Why does he give them this warning? Do you think that he gives them that warning because he is afraid to lose support of a significant part of his congregation there in Corinth? Do you think that Paul does that because he is interested in strengthening his own position? Or maybe because he is jealous of Apollos? Humanly speaking, you might say that he does have something to worry about. Apollos was a very gifted man. 
That is clear from what you can read about him elsewhere in the scriptures. It says about him in Acts 18, verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. In the Greek, it actually says that he was an eloquent man. It's also how the RSV has it. He was a very good speaker. It says further about him in verse 28 of that same chapter that he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate. So he was a good debater, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And so from these passages, it is clear that the people were quite impressed with Apollos. He was a powerful speaker. And therefore, some of them were more impressed by Apollos than they were by Paul. That's what men do. Today we do the same thing. Personality cults pop up all over the world. And with the mass media of today, it is now easier than ever to get your message across. Also in churches. In churches where there is no proper church government in place, that also easily happens. Churches often become personality cults. It becomes more about the man than about the message. Let's stay in our own backyard. We also are in danger of doing that. We also tend to judge the message by the messenger and to make the messenger more important than the message. And therefore, we sometimes elevate the one minister above another. And Paul sees that as a danger, for he knows what that kind of mindset can lead to. He realizes how deeply disappointed those followers of men will be if they continue in that way of thinking. He wants to spare them grief. He's concerned about their salvation. They are God's children. God has made claim to their lives. He has given them eternal life. And he does not want them to squander that heritage by becoming followers of men and giving men a greater role than he really has. Paul's motivations, therefore, are much purer than mine or yours might be. For don't think for a moment that he is upset because of the fact that some people like Paul is better than him. Don't think that Paul is concerned about his own reputation. He's not. What then exactly is his concern? Well, above all, he is concerned about the name and the reputation of him whom he serves, his Lord and Savior. He tells them, don't be so impressed by man. He says to them, don't be so impressed by me or by Apollos, or by anyone else, and be impressed only with what God is doing through these men. If you are impressed by men and their wisdom, then you are not any different from the people of the world. And the wisdom of the world is the wisdom of Satan. And he will lead you right into his clutches. And Satan will try to use every trick in the book Usually, especially clever rhetoric and silk tongues. And that is why in leading up to this passage, Paul gives a long explanation 
of the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And he wants the people, and therefore he wants us to know the difference between those two. And we need to keep being reminded of that because of our sinful nature. He says to them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And so do you see what Paul was trying to accomplish? Paul came to this port city of Corinth in order to establish a church based on the Lord Jesus Christ himself, on our Lord and Savior, not on Paul. He came only with the words his Lord and Savior put into his mouth. And therefore, Paul did not have to depend on eloquent speech or clever arguments. He simply had to declare God's work God's word in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was not some peddler of the word, some cheap Christian salesman. Paul was fully aware that he is in service of God, and God's message on its own is clear enough. It doesn't need any embellishment. It doesn't mean, of course, that Paul has anything against eloquence. On the contrary, It does not mean that eloquence has no place in the preaching. Of course not. God's word has to be brought as clearly as possible. And each preacher must use his God-given talents to the best of his ability. But what he is saying is that that is not the first thing. You may not depend on the eloquence in the first place. The content is always first and foremost. That is why we have textual preaching here from this pulpit. We don't come with all kinds of stories and embellishments. No, God's word has to do it. Eloquence has no meaning if the message is empty. And that's what Paul wanted the Corinthians to clearly understand. They have to understand that man including Paul himself, is merely an instrument in the hand of God. He has to be the best instrument that he can be, mind you. But ultimately, God did not need Paul or Apollos or Cephas or anyone else to establish the congregation in Corinth or anywhere else. He could have used anybody. He could have also done it without any man or any woman. For the church is, as he says in this text, God's field. And he uses that image of field, of a farmer's field, of a vineyard that is also used throughout Scripture. For example, 
In the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, the prophet uses the image of Israel as a vineyard. It says there in verse 7 of Isaiah 5 that the house of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord Almighty and that the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And the Lord Jesus Christ also uses that same imagery. Think about John 15. He even speaks about each individual's believer's heart as the soil and the word of God as the seed. Matthew 13. And now Paul uses that same image as well. Same image that Isaiah does and that, I, that the Lord Jesus does. Together, he says, God's people are his field. And then Paul describes his own role in all this. His task was merely to sow the seed, to cultivate the soil. And that is what he had to do to the best of his ability, also there in Corinth. And he had to do that until he was called later to a different part of the field, until the Lord God called him to go elsewhere. But then after he leaves Corinth, shortly thereafter, Apollos arrives on the scene. The seed had already been planted, and the soil had already been cultivated, and now it was left up to him with his own unique talents to water those plants. Apollos had to, t to keep tending those tender new shoots. And so we see that the task of these men were somewhat different. Yet the one was not more important than the other. It's also clear what Paul says in verse 5. He says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. They are merely servants, servants of God. In the final analysis, there is no difference between the two. God uses whatever talents the one has and the other has, and he uses it for his glory. What does it mean to be a servant? Well, you can serve God in many ways. The concept of biblical service is unique and diametrically opposed to the wisdom of the world. That was so during Paul's time, and that's the case today as well. By nature, we don't want to be servants. No, by nature, we want to be served. That's in accordance with our old, unregenerate nature. And it is that spirit that we see in the world. Oh, sure, there are many people, even though they are unbelievers, who apparently, nevertheless, do serve others unselfishly. However, why do you think they do that? Well, ultimately, people do it for their own honor and glory or to the honor and glory of mankind in general. Certainly not to the glory of God. Human service always has its purpose only so that eventually man himself may be served. If man serves, he does so only because he wants to be the center of attention. He wants to be the one who gets the honor. Most people live to be served. And in this world, the more people you have serving you, the more successful you are considered to be. 
for that's how the world measures success. And now Paul comes with a radically new concept. With Paul, service has a completely different goal. It is exactly the opposite of worldly service. The service that Paul speaks about here is not self-serving, self-seeking. It seeks God and his people and others. It looks for every opportunity not to make the servant shine, but to cast light on the one who is being served. And that is why Paul is not interested in his own reputation. If he does defend his own name as he does elsewhere in this letter and other letters, he does that only so that he can be the most effective servant of the Lord his God. That is his only purpose. And only in that way will he also receive his reward, which is an everlasting reward, a reward without end, a reward which will never run out. For brothers and sisters, don't think that service has no reward. God didn't design it that way. But it has a reward. But only if your service is to the glory of God. If that is how you serve the Lord, then he will also bless you. He blessed Paul in numerous ways, spiritually. And that was such a comfort to him, especially as he suffered and as he went about his missionary tours. He did it in accordance with how God had shown him, how his Lord and Savior had shown him. For that is also how the Lord Jesus Christ served and also how he was rewarded. For where is the Lord Jesus right now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. It says that he has all things under his feet. That is his reward. Those are his wages. God has given him the name above every name. But how did the Lord Jesus Christ receive that? He received that because he was willing to serve. One of the most significant statements that the Lord Jesus Christ ever made was when he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. There was not a single selfish motives at any time for Christ's service. He totally gave of himself. He allowed himself to be humiliated in a way that has never happened before or will ever happen again. He allowed his blessed body to be nailed to the cross. He allowed himself to be buried in a grave. He who knew no sin took all the sin of those who believe upon himself. Talk about humiliation. Talk about not being interested in one's own reputation. It's exactly for that very reason that his name is so highly exalted. In this way, Christ shows us the way for our service. Paul followed his master's lead. He tells the church at Corinth to do the same. And he tells you and me to do the same. Only in that way will you and I receive God's blessings now and in, the, and in into eternity. 
For ultimately, brothers and sisters, and that includes you boys and girls, ultimately it is God's doing. It is all God's doing. The very fact that you are sitting here. And Paul very clearly illustrates that fact by giving an example from agriculture. Paul is the one who planted and Paul is at the watering. And but these, effect, these efforts would have no result if God did not bless that work and if he were not the one who gave that growth. Ultimately, Paul and Apollos were mere instruments in the hands of God. Indeed, even their planting and their watering would have been impossible in themselves if God had not equipped them for that very task. God made both Paul and Apollos who they are and what they are. Apollos may have been an eloquent speaker. God created him in that way. And Paul may have had a clear mind and a strong faith, but also those things were God's gifts to him. And Paul realized that fully. And that is why he time and again warns about not boasting about anything. There is no place for boasting in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ except boasting in him. For he says, if you want to boast, then boast in God and what he does. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 7. He says there, now brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as, of, as though you did not? Indeed, no one, none of us here has anything of his own to boast of. Paul mentions that very fact even about Abraham, the father of all believers. You would think that if anybody had anything to boast about, then it would be him. But listen to what Paul writes in Romans 4 verse 2. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So let me ask you, what about you? Do you have something to boast about? Do you think that you are somebody or something without God? Well, then think again. The gifts that you do have and you all have gifts are all gifts from God. The Lord wants you and me to be humble. For it is only in humility that we can be true servants of one another. And brothers and sisters, we are totally dependent on God for everything. Including our spiritual blessings and including our material blessings. Paul makes the illustration from the world of agriculture for a certain reason. He does, he does so in order to establish a fact God gives the life and the growth for everything. He gives the growth, whether or not it's the actual crop in the field or the spiritual crop in the church or in the mission field. Without him, nothing can grow. 
Without him, everything will wilt and die. All growth needs the breath, the spirit of God himself. And whatever you have received, you have received from the Lord. And what you have received belongs to him. And you have to share it. The crop in the field belongs to him. And you yourself belong to him. And that is a good thing to remember as we think about what is happening in the church. And as the farmers plant their crops in the field. The Lord God reminds us of the role of man. And thus he wants to put our role and our thanksgiving into a proper perspective. We may think that we are quite important, and often we do, don't we? We think that success at least partly depends on ourselves. Look at what I can do. But then think again and again and be thankful. One of the hardest things for man to do is for him to be thankful especially during times of prosperity and abundance, as we are experiencing right now. For it is especially during times of prosperity that we so easily take it all for granted. And then we so easily forget that we are totally dependent on the Lord for everything. We may even take our spiritual growth for granted. But if we do that, then you are endangering the gift. For the Lord indeed gives. But he also takes away. If you don't use that gift to his glory. Brothers and sisters, we are the richest people in the world. Throughout the history of the world, there has never been a people richer than we are right now. We may serve the Lord in freedom. He gives us of his spiritual food. Every day, every first day of the week, we may listen to the preaching of the word. And we have been given the opportunity to attend study societies during the week. We have our own parental school to educate our, our children how rich we are. And he materially blesses us. We can maintain all these things. And yet God is so often given a second place. And we worry about the things that go on in the church. We worry about our crops and our material well-being. And indeed, to a certain extent, we have to do that. For we have to plan and to organize and to provide. But in so doing, let us remember that we are mere creatures totally dependent on our creator. We're not dependent on any man. Do not put your trust in princes, in men, however wise. Oh, sure, God uses man, but he does not depend on them, nor should we. Our salvation is from him. Our total well-being is only because of him. Ultimately, we are like newborn children, not able to feed ourselves or turn over in our cribs. The Lord God looks after you and me like a mother looks after her helpless child. He feeds us when we are hungry, and he gives us clothes to wear and roofs over our heads. And most importantly, he is the one who gives us spiritual food 
And this way, he nourishes us and he feeds us. Oh, sure, he puts us to work. God wants all of us to nourish and to water the crops that grow in his field. He also wants us to reap a bountiful harvest. And so he puts us to work. As he says to the Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. God wants to see a healthy increase in the church. But we are dependent on him in the first place and not on man. And all things have to be done to the honor and glory of God. He alone gives the growth. And he alone gives the fruit of that growth in your lives. Let us praise his holy name. Amen.